Hello and welcome to Deep Dive. From the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. On this week's episode, the Japan Times' is Chris Russell on Brexit and the difficulties it might pose for Japan. And after that, Dan Orlowitz talks about last Saturday's historic game between Japan and Ireland. It's the beginning of October and here in Japan, the country's gone mad with the magic of Japan's surprise Saturday night victory against Ireland in the Rugby World Cup. But in the UK, the ancestral home of the sport, a different fever is raging as the nation bumbles and fumbles its way towards its self-imposed Brexit deadline on October 31st. Everything is uncertain at the moment, not just the UK's future relationship with Europe, but also its relationships with the countries it does business with outside of the European Union, including Japan, who are the second largest source of foreign direct investment into the UK after the USA. Joining me on this episode of Deep Dive to discuss the issue is news desk editor Chris Russell. And today we'll be asking, what might Brexit mean for Japan? Chris, thank you for joining me today. And I want to start with a very broad question, which is, what is Japan's general stance towards Brexit? So from the very start, they've been very consistent on wanting to to avoid what they kind of term a disorderly Brexit. Um, so anything that's going to really disrupt the operations of the Japanese businesses that are there in the UK. And those companies tend to be manufacturers. You know, so Hitachi, for instance, making trains or uh, you know, the likes of Toyota making cars. Mm-hmm. And the nature of those operations is that you know, the parts that they need um, or actually the kind of finished goods that they're selling are you know, crisscrossing you know, borders within the EU. And so if there were to be a sort of disorderly Brexit, a no-deal Brexit, um, which would see the introduction of tariffs and um, you know, other kind of regulatory barriers, that would be really disruptive to those processes and to those businesses. So you know, Prime Minister Abe and other Japanese ministers, when they, they have these meetings with you know, their British counterparts, this is the thing that they're always kind of stressing, is they want it to be an orderly Brexit. They don't want to see trouble. Um, you know, for Japanese companies, and they really emphasise that. And apart from words, have the Japanese government actually put any plans or actions into place to cope with Brexit? Yeah, so in the aftermath of um, the referendum, they actually kind of unveiled a stimulus package, and that was kind of targeting sort of several kind of domestic things. But So this was back in 2016? In 2016, yes. And as part of that, there was a component with an eye towards Brexit, so they'd set aside about 600 billion yen for small and medium-sized enterprises um, to offset any kind of impact from Brexit. And what kind of arrangement do the UK and Japan have at the moment in terms of their trade? So uh, this changed fairly recently. In, on February the 1st, a new uh, EU-Japan economic partnership agreement came into effect. And that uh, kind of liberalised quotas and tariffs on you know things such as cheese, beef, uh, wine, uh, also had an effect on uh, services, um, for instance, telecoms, finance, uh, transport, e-commerce, and also kind of opened up access for European businesses to um, kind of bid for public procurement projects in several big Japanese cities. And because the UK is part of the EU, at least for now, it trades with Japan under this economic partnership or EPA, along with all the other 27 members of exactly. the EU. Yeah. And, um, you know, even though this coming into force comes well after the referendum date, you know, 
the UK still hasn't Brexited yet. It's still a European Union member, right? So although the UK is still very much on track to leave the European Union, uh, this is a deal that's still benefiting from. And you know, when it came into effect, the UK government, you know, by their own estimates, thought this is going to bring a three billion pound boost to the economy in the long run. And you know, the kind of things that they thought were really going to benefit from this. Um, you know, agricultural products, so that's the kind of the beef and the cheese that I mentioned earlier, um, but also things like cars, you know, although perhaps a lot of people don't necessarily think of the UK as being this kind of major car building nation in the way they would with, say, the US or Japan, there are a number of kind of still important car makers out there, such as Jaguar Land Rover mm-hmm. and Aston Martin. Mr. Bond. James Bond. And Aston Martin, I mean, Two years ago, they uh, unveiled a 500 million pound investment in the Japanese market. You know, they have a very fancy kind of a brand showroom in uh, the upscale Aoyama district of Tokyo. It's very nice. So, you know, these companies, they have a strong presence here and they're looking to make that stronger. So right now they're going to benefit from that EPA. But depending on the way in which the UK leaves the EU, perhaps that the benefits of the access to that agreement could go overnight. And on the other side of things, the uh, Japanese side, how important is the UK as a market for Japanese companies? I think it's uh, it's very important as in terms of the manufacturing, as I say. I mean, there's a lot of there's like high highly skilled workforce. You know, there's uh, English language. You know, it's that is the like, global language of business. Uh, you know, you have the rule of law. You have all of these kind of structural strong points that the UK has and so it makes it an attractive place for these Japanese companies to invest. I mean obviously as a consumer market there is that too. I mean the UK is a you know it's a wealthy country mm-hmm. and yeah, it's a very consumer oriented economy. So there is that as well. But I think in terms of the Brexit debate what people really tend to focus in on though is the the manufacturers, the, the industrial aspect of it. So they're worried about losing that access to the EU after spending so much time and money investing in the UK as a EU hub and access point. Mm-hmm. Right. And also just by being a member of the uh, customs union and the single market, the way that that allows for the free flow of you know trade you know, and you know, goods, people, um, that's actually fundamental to the way in which these companies operate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they use this thing called just-in-time manufacturing. You know, let's say that your car, right? Long before you get to your finished car, the different components, the different parts that make up that vehicle, they might actually be crisscrossing you know, EU borders several times. Mm. So it's not just about kind of uh, tariffs and higher costs. It's also actually just disrupting the whole way that they work. And you know, Japanese companies, they were the innovators of this just-in-time approach. And it's something that you know, UK manufacturers, I mean, good manufacturers anywhere in the world, have looked to adopt themselves or, you know, apply to their own um, kind of production approach. So it's UK firms that would be hit by, um, you know, a no-deal Brexit, a hard Brexit, as well as Japanese companies. So far, we've established that Britain is currently trading with Japan under the EU-Japan Economic Partnership Agreement, or EPA, that came into force in February 2019. But Brexit threatens to put an end to Britain's involvement in that partnership as soon as it decides it's actually going to leave the European Union. So I want to move next to actually talking about those Brexit proceedings. 
Obviously this summer saw the UK Prime Minister Theresa May resign and she was replaced by Boris Johnson and a much more Eurosceptic cabinet. So yeah, where are we in those Brexit proceedings at the moment? Sure. So uh, Theresa May, she negotiated a deal uh, with the EU, but that was rejected three times by Parliament. It is clear that the House does not support this deal, but tonight's vote tells us nothing about what it does support. Nothing about how... And... You know, that could still be revived in some way, but I think for the time being, it's still basically seen as kind of being dead in the water. And um, Theresa May eventually stood down because of her you know, inability to break this uh, Brexit logjam, and Boris Johnson took over as Prime Minister. And when he took over, he took on a much more anti-EU, less conciliatory tone. Yeah, he's been um, a lot more confrontational, shall we say. His whole thing is in Brexit, let's get this done, we're going to leave on the 31st of October, come what may, even if that means a no deal. So there's negotiations ongoing, although I think, depending on which commentators you look to, the seriousness of those negotiations um, is sometimes questioned. But apart from that, the Parliament is also trying to work to kind of close down Boris Johnson's options in terms of pursuing no deal. So Mm. what was called the Ben Bill uh, was passed recently, and that compels Boris Johnson to ask the EU for an extension to the Brexit process um, at an EU Council meeting on uh, October the 19th. Can you make a promise today to the British public that you will not go back to Brussels and ask for another delay to Brexit? Yes, and, sorry, I can. And would you I'd rather... rather be, I'd rather be dead in a ditch. So you would resign first, Prime Minister, rather than go and ask for that delay? I, 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 now... Uh, Boris Johnson and other kind of senior uh, conservative lawmakers have kind of reportedly looking for ways around this and quite how that might pan out, it's, we can't say at the moment. So does this Ben Bill effectively take no deal Brexit off the table, at least in the short term? No, absolutely not. So even if Boris Johnson was to comply with the law, the UK is still at the mercy of the EU27, the remaining EU members, and it only takes one of them to veto an extension. So, I mean, let's just say, for instance, France had had enough of this whole process. Mm. And who could blame them? So they may then just veto that extension and then the UK will be on course for a no-deal Brexit on the 31st. And that would just mean plunging out with no kind of deal or transition period right. whatsoever. So, so talk, talk me through these two scenarios um, in a little bit more detail and what they mean in terms of UK-EU relations. So you've got no deal and you've got deal so let's go with deal first okay so deal perhaps is a little bit ambiguous in the sense that actually in terms of the withdrawal agreement that Theresa may negotiated that was more in terms of ensuring a transition period Mm. and kind of setting out the aspirations for what the future relationship is going to look like if we had left on march 29th with that uh with Theresa may's deal there'd have still been a lot of work to be done you know you're really just kind of moving on to the next stage of of the process. But striking such a withdrawal deal would give a more comfortable transition period right. that would allow the EU and UK to come up with a new arrangement that would hopefully be mutually beneficial to the both of them. Yeah, it does. Now, on the other hand, if we have a no-deal Brexit, then that means that uh, UK's trade with the European Union would revert to World Trade Organization rules. And it also means that European law would cease to have effect in the UK. And 
that obviously covers a lot of wide variety of areas. It's very important in terms of the regulatory alignment, which is so key to trade. Part of the reason why these manufacturers can operate in the way that they do is because they're not having to kind of repeat checks on, mm-hmm. you know, at the border and so on. And so it's really integral to that, those smooth kind of manufacturing processes. So by leaving with no deal, you'd have tariffs raised to World Trade Organization tariff levels, which are much higher than the current mm-hmm. levels, and also introduce custom checks at the borders that would pose a serious challenge to those just-in-time manufacturing processes right. that many Japanese manufacturers rely on in the UK. And it would also happen overnight, which would mean the UK and the companies working there would have no transition period or time to adjust to any kind of new arrangement. Yeah, exactly. And who would a no-deal Brexit affect most in terms of Japanese companies working within the UK? Uh, So, I mean, it's going to be companies like Toyota, Hitachi, um, you know, where they're sourcing components from across the European Union. Uh, They have very complex supply chains and manufacturing processes. And, yeah, so if you're having to deal with, you know, checks at the border, you know, this is a kind of huge cost to them. Do you hear talk about, you know, just how much warehousing space the likes of Toyota would need if they even had a 15-minute delay. They're running very, very efficient operations, and it's not easy to just kind of untangle that overnight or even a long period of time. And I think what we're seeing from some of these companies is actually making the decision that, you know, if we have a no-deal Brexit on October the 31st or whenever that is, they're just going to shut down production for a couple of days. It actually makes more business sense for them to just stop working than trying to grind their way through this mm-hmm. whole process and kind of allow them some t- um, some time to recuperate and kind of calculate what their next right a are. bit of breathing space and so on yeah i see and what about non-manufacturers yeah so services is quite different and i think we kind of get a sense of this from the fact that say um ntt actually recently chose london as its european headquarters you know which i think on the face of people think is kind of flying in the face of this brexit situation that we see but services, by and large, are probably going to see much less impact from Brexit. Um, the only areas where you might see that was kind of regulated services. And the big one there for the UK is financial services. Mm-hmm. Already a lot of Japanese banks have moved operations into the EU. So for services, it's less of a concern. I mean, maybe if you have a no-deal Brexit, if that is as damaging economically as people predict and the way that that would kind of cascade through the system, uh, through the economic system, then you're obviously going to see some effects there, perhaps in the long run um, in terms of, you know, just access to labour, getting the skilled and talented people you need. Obviously, that's a lot easier right now with the EU single market because, you know, if I'm a Japanese bank and I want to hire this really great Italian banker, mm-hmm. then it's very simple for them to just go to London and start working. Um we or vice versa, if they want to or, move some of their London staff over to Italy or France or sure, wherever. Or vice versa. So it really, on that front, it really depends on quite where the uh, UK's immigration system lands. I mean, I think perhaps for someone that skilled, maybe it still wouldn't be that much of a problem. But, um, I mean, still with that labour issue, I mean, we're talking about manufacturers, to go back to them, obviously that's going to be probably a, a much tougher thing for them to deal with. And I know as part of your reporting recently, you've been talking to a number of 
UK organizations and firms who are working out in Japan, what kind of effects might those groups see、um, as a result of a deal or a no deal Brexit? A big one for people is this potential loss of the,、uh, the EU Japan EPA. Some of these tariffs and provisions they do take a few years to phase in. So, kind of in The medium term, the long term, you're going to see、uh, UK companies become much less competitive compared to EU businesses. And you know, if you're a Japanese company, unless there's a very specific reason why you need to do business with this UK company, you know, you're probably going to see quite a bit of displacement of trade、mm-hmm. there. So they'd look elsewhere for just cheaper alternatives,、sure. or people they can under this EPA still、yeah. get kind of tariffless or low tariff trade with. Yeah, exactly, and. I mean, you have other things which aren't necessarily directly related to、um, EU Japan trade, but it's these kind of knock-on effects. So, for instance, British businesses are having to kind of grapple with new regulations, you know, regulations that they didn't even know existed before, and all of that is kind of a drain on their business. It's sapping their resources. It's stopping them from kind of going out there and securing the deals that they want to and need to if the UK is to make the best of this、uh, kind of post-Brexit scenario. And what kind of UK companies are trying to trade with Japan or open up operations out here? Is it just the kind of goods providers you were talking about earlier, or are there other technologies and services, for example? It obviously goes beyond goods, although they are a very big part of it, and and certainly kind of、uh, manufacturers are. You know, machinery. You know, that's billions of pounds worth of trade each year. Um, but services make up about fifty percent of the UK's trade with Japan, and I mean, so like financial services, another big one there. You know, that's also again measured in the billions of pounds, the amount of business that's being done. And there are also kind of, I guess, more emerging sectors that、um, that people are kind of looking towards. I mean, so kind of related to financial services, but、uh, fintech would be one of them.、Mm-hmm. You know, artificial intelligence,、uh, you know, life sciences. You know, Japan has. Um, you know, quickly aging society、um, in the UK too does to an extent. So there's kind of some complementary、uh, conditions, shall we say, there. And for a UK company that can kind of prove their service or their product in the UK, obviously Japan is going to be an appealing market for them there for them as well. And one UK sector that I thought was really interesting that's trying to establish a f- strong foothold here. Is the nuclear decommissioning sector? Sure. Yeah, and actually, those efforts have been ongoing for a while.、Um, so the UK was kind of, I think, the first country to really sort of confront this problem of nuclear decommissioning, and so have a lot of kind of expertise there. And so through that, there have been various kind of partnerships.、Uh, I believe TEPCO, you know, are sort of somewhat regularly going over to the UK in order to kind of try and absorb. Some of the sort of best practice and know-how, and kind of on a related note,、um, renewables is another kind of promising sector. So I mean, the UK is a world leader, if not the world leader, in wind power, off- offshore wind power generation. And so you have a lot of Japanese companies wanting to have a look at that, and then when they try and bring that know-how back to Japan, often there may well be some kind of business deal for a UK firm in tow. So. Those kind of、uh, exchanges can also be sort of lucrative in the long run. We've talked about the negatives of a potential no deal or transitional deal scenario, but are any of these companies actually thinking they might benefit、um, from Brexit? Yeah, I think it's kind of hard to say at this point because 
we don't know what a uh, future UK Japan trade deal looks like, and there's kind of several reasons for that. And I think it's worth pointing out here that there won't be a deal in time for October the 31st. Now, that's not least because while the UK is a member of the European Union, you can't actually negotiate trade deals. Um, So even if the UK leaves with a hard Brexit on October 31st, there's nothing in place because they haven't had an opportunity to negotiate. Now, you can roll over some deals, and that's what we've seen in some cases. Um, For Japan, that was not the approach uh, pursued. I think that's because, you know, the UK is obviously hoping it can get something a little bit more in certain sectors. Um, But in addition, uh, so quite apart from inability to negotiate, um, the UK has only just recently opened up public consultations for the trade deal. And so that's going to run until early November. So you can see there's not going to be something there just yet. And we know that trade deals are complicated. I think even when you've got a basis for one in the form of the EPA. These are not simple issues. I mean, we can look at Japan's negotiations with the US. And I think that's kind of widely viewed as having been, you know, a fast negotiation. Uh, Yet that's still taking months. And there are actually still several question marks about that. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of gives us a sense of scale, perhaps in terms of what we might be looking at. The other route that has been kind of uh, floated is the idea of the UK joining uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So this is a really massive multilateral trade deal that was uh, negotiated and um, kind of finalised under President Obama's term, although Trump then withdrew the US from it. And Japan was very instrumental in kind of getting that back on track. And that, yeah, kind of massively liberalises trade. It has a lot of provisions in terms of like non-tariff barriers and, and the like. So if the UK were to be able to join that, that would also be a significant step and actually I think would offset a lot of the loss from the the EU-Japan EPA. Mm. But no country has joined the TPP yet, um, apart <laughs> from the original members. So it's kind of uncharted ground. And, you know, again, that's in some ways more complicated because you're not just negotiating bilaterally at that point, you're negotiating with 11 countries. And you mentioned earlier that um, the UK was expecting to kind of see a three billion pound benefit from the new EPA, its trading arrangement under the European Union. And in fact, they were one of the people, one of the groups, one of the countries that was really pushing for this EU-Japan trade agreement. So it kind of begs the question, is any of it actually worth it? Yeah, and it's it's a complicated one. I mean, so we have to kind of see what kind of comes of uh, of this deal. Um, but I think for certain sectors, we can possibly say that it won't be worth it. So, for instance, if we look at agricultural products, um, so just earlier this year, uh, a long-standing Japanese ban on um, British beef and lamb was lifted. And this was, kind of, I think, a long-term goal for the UK government and for the British farming sector. So it was a real victory when that happened. And that was as, uh, the original ban was because of foot and mouth? Yes, yes, because of, uh, oh no, sorry, mad cow disease. Mad cow disease. Yeah. And so, I mean, the government was projecting, you know, £127 million boost over the first five years because of this. But, you know, to speak to the National Farmers Union, um, you know, what they're kind of saying is that if we drop out of the European Union in a no-deal Brexit, then actually to lose out on the EPA, it almost undermines, you know, purported benefits of uh, the easing of the ban. 
And actually, when you kind of speak to businesses and ask them, you know, what, you know, what's what's the upside here for you? Often it kind of comes back to a sort of conversation about mentality, mm. and it's um, you know this idea of prompting people to look beyond the European market, you know, looking to places further away to Asia, which is obviously like a very fast-growing region, and you know, really seizing that opportunity, and also. You know, the EU-Japan EPA almost bears this out. You know, it's like right when the UK is talking about this need to be opening up these distant markets, well, the Europe's UK has just gone and done it yeah. anyway. And, you know, it's also has this um, new deal with uh, South American countries. Now, I know that's kind of hit some bumps in terms of the ratification of it, and I'm sure Brexiters would seize upon that as uh, as evidence of the weakness of being in the EU, but I think nonetheless there is still something of a tension there. So to wrap things up a bit, I know that the UK can't start negotiating a trade deal until it does in fact leave the European Union properly. But even with that being said, what kind of anticipatory measures have we seen from the UK in regards to any kind of potential future deal with Japan? So recently, the uh, UK's trade minister, Liz Truss, uh, was in Japan, and she had a meeting with uh, foreign, newly appointed foreign minister, Toshimitsu Motegi. And, you know, in her comments afterwards, you know, Liz Truss was kind of emphasising, you know, um, the fact that they really want to make progress in terms of these, you know, so-called modern sectors, such as um, AI and financial services. But of, as I say, there's only so much they can do at this point. In terms of the more kind of meaningful action, there was uh, an exchange of uh, letters of mutual recognition, which basically means that if you know there was a no-deal Brexit, Japan and the UK agree to recognise standards um, or each other's standards in a few areas. Um, so that's kind of medicines, uh, electrical goods, chemicals, uh, telecoms equipment. So that reduces some of the or gets rid of the checks for things covered by that. So I think that was quite a kind of positive, concrete outcome of that visit. So we've had some concrete action with that exchange of mutual letters, and it does seem like Japan is overall quite supportive of the UK as it goes through Brexit, whatever form that may take. But what impact do you think Brexit might have on the overall relationship, not just in terms of trade, between Japan and the UK? In terms of what we're seeing now, I don't think there's really an impact. Um, for the past few years, uh, Japan and UK have been doing what these called uh, two plus two talks, so it's meetings between the countries, uh, defence and foreign ministers. And so that's one thing you have in terms of the cooperation. Also, you know, the uh, UK and Japan militaries have engaged in you know joint exercises. Um, you know, there's been a declaration on uh, security cooperation in 2017. And just kind of more generally, I think both countries have, you know, um, a shared interest in, you know, maintaining this, you know, so-called liberal uh, rules-based international order. You know, they're both stakeholders in that. And kind of more specifically, there are a number of issues where there's kind of scope for cooperation or there's overlapping interests. So, for instance, freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, um, you know, the whole Iran issue. So... I think certainly in the short to midterm, we shouldn't really expect too much of a change. But obviously, you know, the way that Brexit might pan out, that is the uh, the question mark. And maybe longer term, I know that's a little bit harder to say. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. No, thank you, Oscar. 
That was the Japan Times' Chris Russell, and you can see more from him online at japantimes.co.jp. Now, joining me from the sports desk is Dan Olowitz, who's been covering the Rugby World Cup and had the great fortune to be there at Saturday night's game between Ireland and Japan. Dan, welcome to the studio. What happened? And how was it? Japan won. <laughs> uh, Japan won in one of the most shocking ways I can imagine they could win. Uh, they kept it very close in the first half, went into halftime uh, trailing 12 to 9, which at the time you look at the scoreboard, you see you know, Ireland world number two only up by three points. You figure either they're going to switch into third gear and pull away in the second half or, or something crazy is going to happen. And indeed, something crazy happened. I have, as a photographer, been privileged to cover a number of incredibly uh, important sports events in Japan, Club World Cups, Asian Champions League, uh, the World Figure Skating Championships uh, back in March. I don't think I have ever heard a stadium as loud as when Japan scored that try and took the lead. And uh, it was all taking place in the Shizuoka Stadium. Um, it was kind of beautiful. It was a beautiful sunset. I feel like for Japan, it must have been so iconic playing underneath Mount Fuji as well. Um, but just how significant is it for Japan beating Ireland, the world number two? I think that if you look back to the 2015 World Cup when Japan upset South Africa, and at the time that was uh, considered to be probably one of the, if not the greatest upsets in Rugby World Cup history, uh, you can debate over whether or not this was a bigger upset. But I do think that because of that result in Brighton, uh, heading into this game, there probably were one or two Ireland fans thinking, well... Please not us. <laughs> please not us. Uh, I noticed interviewing fans before the game, uh, they did not expect Japan to be pushovers. What dangerous as they show against South Africa. We come here to have a good time no matter what. We win, we lose, we draw, we'll still party. Yeah. And we'll still go and we'll if Japan beat us today, we'll support Japan tomorrow. Come on, They may have been confident that Ireland would win, um, talking about the Irish fans of course, uh, but they didn't expect this to be a cakewalk and after the game uh, they were very gracious in defeat. The best team won. The best team won. We're clearly we're very good at tonight, but you know we're pretty sure we'll still qualify for the quarterfinal. Japan. Japan were amazing. They played really good. Japanese defense was absolutely rock solid. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. They described. Yeah, they said. The Irish players were, were sort of sleeping a bit. They they didn't quite have it together, and Japan pounced, and uh, the blossoms were in full bloom <laughs> on Saturday, and it was a, a beautiful stadium. It was my first time uh, covering a game there. Incredible atmosphere. Uh, so it, it was an incredible experience, and I'm very lucky to have been there. And certainly when we were talking uh, 
last time to Elliot Samuels and Andrew McCurdy, and they were kind of offering their World Cup preview. It was always talk of Ireland definitely winning the group. Um, Japan and Scotland probably battling out for second, and Samoa and Russia kind of probably coming fourth and fifth between them. But now, after this game, Japan are top of the table. They have beaten the unbeatable Ireland. What do you think Japan has in store for them for the next two games? I think that they do have to be careful not to get overconfident against Samoa. They're going to be a tricky opponent. And after beating a team like Ireland, I think it's easy to get into that overconfident mode of, oh, well, if we beat Ireland, we could beat anyone. And that's not true. As we learned on Saturday, you haven't beat someone until the game is over. So that's going to be tough in a... I believe they're calling it City of Toyota Stadium uh, on this this coming Saturday. Uh, the key game is still going to be Japan-Scotland. Uh, if Ireland close out the group with a 3-1 and one record and Japan lose to Scotland, then you've got three teams sitting at 3-1. and one. But that's still a very dangerous proposition. As we remember, uh, Japan won three games at the last World Cup and still got knocked out international stadium yokohama last day of the pool stage uh that's where it's all going to come down to and that is going to be a game that in atmosphere may rival uh this win over ireland so a fantastic victory for japan but let's not celebrate too hard just yet thank you so much for joining us in the studio today anytime thank you that was the Japan Times' Dan Orlowitz. My thanks to him and Chris Russell for joining us in the studio today. You can find more from both of them online at japantimes.co.jp. Before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to ask for a brief moment of your time. We are conducting a survey of our listeners to find a bit more about who's enjoying the show, the content you'd like more of, and where you think Deep Dive could do better in the future. If you can spare a moment, please do visit jtimes.jp dd and let us know your thoughts. One more time, that is jtimes.jp slash dd. And the link will be in the episode notes. Thank you so much to all those who've already taken the time to fill in the survey. For more episodes like this one, and to receive new episodes as soon as they come out, do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And if you're enjoying Deep Dive, why not rate us or leave us a review on one of those services? Until next time then, Podscatter Summer.